Happy New Year, Monica. Happy New Year, Emma. What's your resolution? My New Year's resolution is to watch more television and not Cocoa Melon. <laughs> well, watching more television is a great way to not get cocoa, so stay in, watch streamers. Eat melon. And eat melon. It has lots of vitamin C in it. We've got a great guest coming up, Hannah J. Davies, the Guardian TV critic. She's going to help us answer a question we were wondering about, which is, is this truly the golden age of television? Or are we all just addicted to the cheap thrills of not having to wait for the next episode? This is an important question and one that keeps me up at night. Uh, well, either that keeps me up at night or Bridgerton does, I'm, I'm not really sure. But before we get into that conversation, I think we should have a really quick game of Two Truths and a Lie, just because I want to know if I can defend my title as champion. <sighs> okay, hit me. Okay. One, during my brief career as a teen actor, I once played party girl number one on a show called Beautiful People and had my own trailer and everything, even though I only had one line and it had to do with condoms. Two, I auditioned for the part of Ginny Weasley, but was told that my accent needed work. And three, the first TV show to give me nightmares was The X-Files, which I watched accidentally once while visiting an older cousin. And to this day, I can't watch anything that's too gruesome or scary because I'll be terrified for weeks. So I, so you didn't audition for Ginny Weasley, I'm afraid. But... <laughs> You uh, honestly, I feel like you should have got that part. <laughs> oh, yes. I'm so glad you got it. Yeah, I wish. And I just want to highlight that Beautiful People wasn't your only role because you were also in a, a rather excellent Hitchcock remake. Oh, my If I remember word. correctly. What was it? The Birds? Uh, I think they called it Caw. Nothing like an onomatopoeic But it was title. a remake of the, the, the Hitchcock title Please was The Birds, right? don't look it up. Right? Please, nobody look this up. <laughs> there, was a there was a commercial as well, but I'm not going to tell you what it was. Uh, we'll save that for a future Two Truths and a Lie. Uh, okay, ding, ding, ding. You win, you win. I wish I had auditioned for the Harry Potter movies, but alas, my name didn't get called. I really could have seen you as Ginny, but I also feel like you would have made a really good Hermione. Oh, that's nice. That's really nice. Speaking of nice things, Monica, what was in the inbox this week? So uh, we received a really lovely email from Addie, who's currently living in Reims, which is about an hour and a half away from Paris. I laughed out loud walking this morning over the bit about ça n'existe pas en France, because it's a classic line I've heard too often. I love living here, having a strong affinity for French culture and history, but hearing these tales from such a respected writer was such a comfort. They made me appreciate even more the opportunity I've had to live here. So thank you for bringing Adam on the podcast. I've already looked up his books to read right away because I'm so intrigued by the tales of expats in Paris. It sounds almost like a modern day Hemingway slash lost generation perspective, making me smile since I studied English at university and wrote my senior thesis on Hemingway's Paris. As for Emily in Paris... I get so much secondhand embarrassment seeing how she just parades around the city as if she owns it, and it shows the absolute worst of American tourists. She's the type that locals roll their eyes at, and the type that no outsider in Paris aspires to be. Yet, 
She seems to have it easy and it's irritating. Anyway, thanks for starting the podcast. Look forward to more great episodes. Addie, I couldn't have said it better myself. All right. So what have you been watching lately, Mon? I have been watching Billions and I know I'm a little late to this party, but I was really interested in the the recent trend, which we're going to get into with Hannah, but the recent trend for the sort of anti-hero and that I feel like the probably most large scale example of that, where there like literally isn't one entirely sympathetic character is Succession. Which I have not yet watched. It's part of my New Year's resolution to watch okay. Succession. Well, you, I'm not going to spoil it for you, but there isn't, they're all, it, it just proves that you don't have to have a classic sympathetic hero uh, for a show to be good, more, more than good, really great. Well, actually, continuing with unsympathetic leads, The White Lotus is filled with deeply unsympathetic characters. <laughs> I love that show, too. I really, actually, it might have been my best show of 2021. Really? Tell us why. That's saying something, because I watched a lot of shows being, like, in lockdown and then heavily pregnant and then, <laughs> you know, at home with the baby. I've watched more TV than I ever have before in my life. Um, but White Lotus is probably my winner. Uh, because it brings up such relevant right now topics that I have certainly heard around dinner tables recently. Um, and I would imagine a lot of people have, uh, a real dysfunctional dialogue between Gen Zers and their parents. A, it pokes at the woke without disagreeing with it. Mm -hmm. It lets you make your own opinion. So, but it doesn't just take wokeism as like, as the word of God. There's this one really memorable dinner table conversation in which everyone is just blundering into this kind of, or at least the, certainly the parents, the boomer parents, or, yeah. or Gen X, maybe they are even. Well, they are, wouldn't be boomers. They're really, Gen X, I guess. Yeah, yeah, they're boomers. kind of Gen X. But they're like blundering into especially the dad who maybe has had a drink or two. I can't remember, but he's kind of blundering into the wokeness conversation. And then his university age daughter and her friend are shutting him down. And it's so uncomfortable. Um, and there are, none of them are necessarily right, but they- yeah, I, What I like about that scene is I don't think that anybody is right. Because especially his daughter, who's like incredibly performative, her entire thing is like so transparent. She gets called out for it later by her friend. But um, but I actually think that she seems just as stupid as her dad. <laughs> but anyway, if you haven't watched it. This is definitely something that I want to ask Hannah about. Like the, the idea of streamers, you know, because they're just in time, like the production system, and you know, allows them to be made um, quickly and you know like how fascinating that these conversations that are actually taking place around a lot of dinner tables very awkwardly are then also projected on the screen uh and we're able to kind of have this like is it catharsis or yeah before hannah joins us we have to touch on bridgerton how could we not because i've just finished the first season i know i'm really late to the game it's been a year since it came out um, but this record for shame i know i know this record breaking series um that is so fantastical uh and i found you know personally i found the first episode difficult and this is kind of a common thing with streamers a lot of i don't know if Ooh, you're it's hard to this. get into yeah yeah people mm -hmm. when they recommend a show to me and now i find myself doing it with other people is 
the line is kind of give it a chance. You know, it'll take an episode or two um, and mm. give it a chance. And that's funny because that reminds me of when you're recommending, like for me, when I recommend a work of fiction to somebody who doesn't read a lot of fiction, and it's like, mm. you know, you've got to give it 10 chapters or you've got to give it, you know, uh, yeah. don't expect to be immediately immersed it's you know it takes a little bit of work to get into the story world um and i think that's something that streamers are, are asking of us uh which is kind of interesting and i like that but in the case of bridgerton it was it was it wasn't that the storylines weren't juicy and meaty and all that right off the bat it was more that it was like oh my gosh why are they talking like no, that no, it's like a bit this, cringe it's a bit cringe yeah. at first you're like ah contemporary like no regency i don't know but then once you completely allow yourself to just like enjoy it and feel you're inside a la durée box basically like you know those beautiful yeah, exactly. colored patisserie boxes you're on the inside of a la durée box and but you know what kept me there as well through those slightly cringe moment that you're describing is the fact that julie andrews is the narrator it's like well if julie andrews can be here so can i i did not even i did not even make that connection um, I love when they get sort of narrator cameos. I guess it's not really cameo, but when they get great voices to narrate, like um, Alec Baldwin narrating the Royal Tenenbaums. Sorry, no, he's a controversial figure, but he has an undeniable, un, undeniably great voice. Wow. I didn't know that either. Gosh, you're so up with the narrators. I like I like voice artistry. Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I've been watching a lot of cartoons lately, so I too am appreciating a good voice voiceover artist. Who voices Coco Bellin? Oh my gosh. Ugh. Whole body cringe. Ugh. I mean, I am very grateful to the makers of Coco Melon. There are some good and there are also some shows that I really like Go Dog Go. I don't know if you've ever seen that. But I'm actually I'm not there yet. And during the Christmas season, The Grinch, there was a 2018 version of the Grinch that I watched probably 60 times uh, that includes some really interesting Grinch related hip hop by someone called Tyler, the creator and Benedict Cumberbatch. And I think Pharrell, hold on, let me, what? Yeah, yeah, no, there's a really, the 2018 Grinch. I'm a big fan of both of those people. So, okay. Let me just do a little IMDB scan to fact check this information. You're mean one. You really are a hero. You're as cuddly as a cactus. You're as charming as an ear. Mr. Grinch. You're a bad banana. Mr. Grinch. So that's confirmed. Everybody watch The Grinch. It's not too late. Well, Hannah, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Just to recap, we introduced you earlier, but you write about culture for The Guardian. This includes writing up a lot of shows, among other media. How how many shows do you think, Ballpark, you watch uh, a, a year? I mean, this year it was definitely a lot because of, you know, still being in lockdown and what have you, especially at the beginning of the year. So, yeah, plenty. Probably heading into the, the into, into three figures, I'd guess, but... A lot of it, a lot, wow. a lot of it, not particularly good. But no, I shouldn't really say that. A lot, very, very, very in quality. And you know, you come to do your end of year list, and then that's where you're like, "Wow, I did watch a lot of things. I really sat through all of season three of you." But you know, we all make mistakes, don't we? So, 
Streaming uh, platform budgets have multiplied in recent years, as you know, uh, especially with the pandemic. We're wondering if you think that streaming culture is really good for television. Are we living in some kind of golden age of telly? And if you think so, how so? Why? Just because there's a lot of something doesn't necessarily mean that it is that it's good, right? And we're just absolutely so overwhelmed now with choice in terms of the actual streaming services themselves, in terms of the shows. I mean, there's just so, so, so much. Um, there was some research uh, earlier this year in the US. Uh, I think it was by Verizon, the uh, the cable company, and they were sort of looking into people's streaming habits, and they said that 56% of people just felt absolutely overwhelmed by the amount of choice. Um, and 80% of people uh, wanted to be able to search, to have a universal search for all streaming services, because you know how frustrating it is when you're like, hmm, I wonder whether this film or this TV show is available. And you go through and you search on Netflix, it's not there. You go through, you search on something else, it's not there. It's just an overwhelming uh, amount of, of stuff out there. I think from my perspective, obviously, it's great. It's it's kind of kept me in a job and kept a lot of other people in <laughs> in jobs. So that's brilliant. And um, there is so much variety. Uh, obviously, there's a lot more international TV now as well, as we've seen with things like uh, Squid Game recently, Lupin, like huge hits. People are kind of overcoming that fear of subtitles. So that's all really brilliant stuff. Uh, but it does also mean, as with anything, just with the amount of volume, that there's also a lot of kind of also rounds. Uh, there's a lot of shows that are uh, not particularly, you know, critically acclaimed, but they're just kind of there. And you're like, whoa, that's on its fifth season. How's that kind of happened? So in terms of golden age, I think, I feel like there's just a general post, if you want to say post Sopranos, post Breaking Bad, The Wire kind of golden age of prestige TV, of which something like um, Succession might fit into now. I think that isn't, isn't necessarily affected by streaming, I don't think. I think that's just, if they, I guess what I'm trying to say, if things are a certain quality, uh, then they'll, they're going to have that cut through still. Um, and maybe they're kind of accepted more as part of the cultural conversation now, something like with something like Succession. But I don't know necessarily that the kind of amount uh, is, is the reason why that, that will be happening anymore. I think if anything, the amount is what sort of puts certain people off TV. We were just wondering, Hannah, what in your opinion are, if, if they exist, the universal elements that make a show great? And do those transcend the shift to streaming? I guess it depends on the genre of the show, right? Um, for drama, I guess you kind of want, you know, gripping plots. You, you, you maybe want a bit of intrigue in there. Comedy, obviously, uh, I guess our notions of humour are different depending on where we are, who we are, etc. Um, but I guess I guess originality is, is is definitely part of it, an original proposition. Um, I think with these international shows that are becoming so popular, uh, again, maybe providing something that people haven't necessarily seen before or engaged with before. So, um, i.e., with Squid Game, you know, Korean TV. I think, but that that said, existing IP is is, is also a big thing as well, obviously, uh, and. Netflix, you know, kind of has a lot of that, uh, even something like Lupin, obviously already picking up um, on, on a kind of, from what I understand is kind of like the French version of... Sherlock Holmes, yeah. Of Sherlock almost, of Sherlock Holmes, yeah. Um, so Universal, I'm not, you know, I think it just really depends, doesn't it? But sometimes things do just kind of just really capture people's imagination on, on, on mass, don't they? And I think those tend to be the more intriguing original propositions generally. There is the like Seinfeld factor that I'm kind of obsessed with, which is that some shows work in some countries and not others. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's what's so interesting about what's happened with Squid Game now is that that is 
clearly a big successful export. I mean, the most successful export probably ever. But people in, this is a massive generalization, but people in North America love Seinfeld, or a specific kind of person in North America loves Seinfeld. People in England kind of get Seinfeld in the UK, and people in France do not get Seinfeld. And it's incredibly frustrating for people who, yeah, like Monica and my sense of humor is like 98% Seinfeld based. And so it's really hard. People just don't understand you at all. Well, people just don't think I'm funny here. <laughs> do, do you watch, did you watch Seinfeld? Do you think Seinfeld's funny? I'm not like a Seinfeld mega fan, but I have to say when I saw it was on Netflix, I was like, oh, you know what? That's just, it's got that nostalgia hit really, hasn't it? So yeah. I'd, I, I wouldn't say it's like my favourite comedy ever, ever, but it's definitely in that category of kind of, uh, yeah, easy watching shows and definitely humour that translates for sure. Well, OK, so this is a new genre kind of that I've heard crop up, this idea of comfort viewing. Right. And I think part of it has to do with the fact that like when we were kids, you had to wait for the OC. You weren't able to just conjure Marissa at will. But now on your phone, which is in your pocket exists all of television whenever you feel like it, if you're fortunate enough to have all these different, you know, subscriptions to streaming services. And so there are lots and lots of people of our generation who just like have Seinfeld or Friends or Gilmore Girls or How I Met Your Mother or whatever, you know, insert comfort viewing of choice. Maybe it's a home reno show, but on in the background while they're sleeping or doing the dishes or whatever, their homework. It's such a different, it, that's a real streaming phenomenon, isn't it? Yeah, I reckon so. Um, there was actually a really interesting piece. I don't know whether you saw um, either earlier this year or late last year, maybe late last year, uh, in The New Yorker about this kind of ambient TV watching. Uh, this is kind of the soundtrack now to your evening at home, yeah, doing the dishes or even just on your phone, right, double, double screening. Like you're actually not even looking at the screen. You're on, you're on TikTok, you're on whatever, and you've just got this in the background uh, as this kind of, yeah, comforting soundtrack to what, to what it is that you're doing. And the piece kind of, it must have been late last year, actually, because it, it, it I think it was when Emily in Paris had just come out and it was kind of um, saying that shows like this are almost genetically engineered for that. So you can be very much engaged in doing, <laughs> in doing something else while also 100% knowing what's going on in the show, right? You don't have to really be watching it at all. Mm. Interesting. You don't have to concentrate, exactly. No. No, it's oh, really interesting. Mon, have, have you ever done any comfort viewing? I have to say, I was just thinking about it. I think I kind of do it with friends in Seinfeld a bit while being on Instagram or whatever. But I actually, I do that more with podcasts. Maybe you're comfort podcasting us right now. Maybe <laughs> you are. Lucky. And we don't mind. Please continue. We need to talk about the recent Sex in the City revival, Hannah. It has us wondering about revivals in general. Um, can you can you ever go home again? Does it work? What do you think? I mean, it is the prevailing TV trend now, isn't it? Everything seems to be getting rebooted. As you say, Sex and City, obviously, really notably recently. Uh, Gossip Girl also this year. Just seems like everything there. Even rebooting Frasier, right? It's just, it's yeah, absolutely everywhere. I think it is such a gamble, isn't it? And as I was saying before, I think that existing IP people do kind of fall back on that because it's popular. You know exactly what um, you're, you're, you're getting from it as a, as a TV maker. And I think especially in these kind of COVID times where things are a bit uncertain, 
lots of productions have been delayed, lots of shows that we thought we were going to see in 2021 we've not seen, even things we thought we were going to see last year we've not seen necessarily. So I think it's a really safe bet at the moment. Uh, but in terms of whether they whether they work, I mean, it, on one hand, I do think it is, it's quite lazy, isn't it, to kind of return to certain things uh, because they're tried and tested. And I think with something like Sex and City as well, it almost started like this mini culture war online, didn't it? about it was sort of half you know half people going you know oh this is going to be really cringy and kind of why are they doing this and then the other half sort of going why are you disrespecting sex and city by sort of you know dragging it's dragging it sort of name into the mud and I, it, seemed, it seemed like a really weird sort of debate almost going on that seemed quite disingenuous in a, in a way because nobody had actually seen the series so there was all this sort of furore before anyone had even watched the show and now that it's come out, I don't know, I feel like that the, there hasn't been so much of a debate. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I've just not been reading enough in the past few weeks. But I just feel as though a lot of the debate was pre. And now that it's out, it's kind of there's not too much, too much chatter. There's more chatter about the, about the Peloton stuff. Everyone's just talking about Peloton. Yeah. Well, and the debate, I mean, the, the whole kind of Kim Cattrall not joining and was it bad of them to go ahead without her? When I was reading about that, I found it interesting her point was sort of like this was another era in my life I I don't want to go back there you know like I'm I'm at a certain age now and I'm kind of over it and please just let me be over it which you know if someone were to say to you like go back to the job that you had in your 20s you know you have to start again right now that I that would be a little bit stressful like I can appreciate why some of the actors involved in these shows don't want to try and go home again Oh, absolutely. Especially if it's a job you've done in your 20s and you did two quite, you know, problematic, one specifically quite racist movie in that job. You might also just want to close the door behind it, right? Yeah. 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 Also, the Samantha role is not an easy role. It's kind of demanding. It's pro- on some level probably the most demanding because you've got to be so... I mean, good with yourself and your body. She was doing naked scenes all the time. I mean, def- just to defend Kim Cattrall here for a second, because oh, yeah. totally. uh, I don't think it's a role. And I'm not saying that um, a, a woman who's, you know, 20 years older shouldn't want to play that role. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I think that it probably took a lot out of her generally. And I can understand not wanting to jump back into a role like that. Which she played marvelously and clearly gave a lot to at the time. But I do think that the whole like beef between SJP and Kim Cattrall is frankly quite hilarious. Well, it is, uh, you know, one of the things about TV series is that they're supposed to end, right? Like that's the the high school kids graduate, you know, the, the love interests finally get together. Like they're, they need to end. They ha- they The drama just gets worse if they don't end. Um, and so the idea of trying to like, bring them back and expect it to be as good as the first time. I think it's it's kind of setting you up for disappointment. So it's like, okay, you can get that like sort of sugar rush that you get if you have like seconds of dessert because the cake was really good. So you're gonna have some more cake, but like, you know, law of diminishing returns, it's not as good as the first slice. I don't know, that's my take on it. I haven't watched the Sex and the City yet though, but I did watch the Gilmore Girls one. In terms of brand new concepts and shows, um, we were just discussing White Lotus and The Chair and some of the other titles that are kind of working out contemporary societal debates on screen, uh, which you had sort of alluded to. Do you think, is it possible to really have the whole picture on an issue while we're still in the thick of it? Is this something that television is, you know, well suited to addressing? It's really interesting, isn't it? Because we're kind of seeing things that were made in the pandemic, reflecting the pandemic while it's still ongoing. Um, And I think, 
not to talk completely about succession, but like succession, for example, they decided to you know, completely ignore the pandemic within that, even though that had clearly had an impact on the way it was filmed. So, yeah, I think it's interesting to kind of see form and content of things influenced um, by what's going on around us. I think with The White Lotus, that seemed right, very, very prescient for this year and obviously fantastically well done. And I think, yeah, probably in, in terms of, 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 of working out the kind of haves and have, have nots mood of the, of, of the past few years and the kind of deepening social divides and people's um, willful ignorance and also some people's genuine ignorance <laughs> towards things. I thought it was a fantastic portrayal of that. Um, and I think a lot of shows have been about, have been about that, right, and have been about, um, societal kind of breakdown in a way even something like squid game um that obviously uh people weren't going to that to, to go and participate in those, in those bloody games for no reason they were going because they were in debt and because they didn't have housing and what have you so i think all of these shows they're kind of about our um our economic and our and our social uh, instability right and yeah i think the 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 white lotus was was also great in the sense that i thought it was just really just riotous as well right like the the suitcase scene in particular, just just absolutely horrendous, but so, so enjoyable. How do you think, Hannah, that such characters, and let's take Succession in particular as an example, managed to draw us in despite their really questionable morals, bad attitudes? It's interesting, isn't it? Because if someone sort of said the plot, you know, wrote down the plot of Succession for you. I think most people would be like, okay, this sounds actually really depressing. Do I want to watch this? Do I want to watch awful. hours of these people who clearly hate each other and have these sort of deep-seated psychological traumas from being in that family? Like, it's, it sounds it sounds terrible. But I think they managed to bring a lot of humanity to it. And um, I, I wrote a piece just before this um, this season started, actually, speaking to the writers about how they've written seasons one and two and the kind of development of the characters over that time. And the thing that a lot of them kept coming back to because I'd spoken to a lot of them individually and then sort of put everything together, what I noticed was the sort of common threads uh, was actually that they brought in a lot of things from their own personal lives, a lot of things that they um, had had gone through or knew of people who, who, who had gone through similar things and kind of applied those to the characters and how the characters um, relate to that. And um, this didn't make it into the final piece, but one of the writers said um, that one of their colleagues was going through a divorce, uh, went to the loo and nearly... Uh, <laughs> nearly weed on his divorce papers and they actually wanted that to happen with Kendall in the series but they couldn't get that in but but anyway I guess what I'm trying to say is that oh they're, always, they're always sort of looking at what's going on in their own writer's room and their own lives and kind of humanizing these people and I think we've seen that in this series as well that for every kind of morally objectionable thing and kind of unconscionable thing they do you also see oh gosh but they're going through this or you know this this there's there's this other kind of thing happening in the background so I think that's how they do it don't they um you get the light and the shade. I don't think there's anybody who's actually, I mean, I'd say, I'd, I guess Logan's pretty unsympathetic, but yeah, I'd, I'd, say, I'd say generally, I mean, even he got a, a UTI and went and, and, and went off the rails and thought there was a cat under his chair, right? Even he had a, he had a bad patch. <laughs> okay, so wait, how does this, I'm just curious, I'm very glad personally, and forgive me if you disagree, maybe we can talk about it, but I'm so glad that we're out of the reality TV tunnel that we were in, in kind of like, you know, our late teens and early 20s, where it was just like season 85 of Bad Brother or whatever. And I think those two, though, were about humans being all too human. That was part of what was so terrifying about those shows. And I know that they were like scripted and manipulated and all kinds of things that were, you know, but it was like, I, I can't watch another id 
perform on TV. I just can't. It's it's too demoralizing. Why is it so different when it's fiction? There's probably in, uh, not a lot to kind of divide the, the, the dramas that we see in real life and the dramas that we see in a drama, I suppose. But um, I would say with, with, with reality TV, I suppose now we know that a lot of things that we saw were, especially in sort of early 2000s, right, were very problematic. Um, there's a lot of kind of redressing the balance with that sort of stuff. There's a great podcast now, which you guys might know of, um, about the show. Uh, there's something about Miriam, about which was uh, about this uh, trans trans woman who basically got humiliation on reality TV. So there's a lot of kind of looking back at that and looking at how maybe that failed. And I suppose if there was a drama that tackled something like that now, uh, that tackled, you know, a, a, trans, a trans character, um, it would maybe just be done in a very different way, right? I guess that's it. Just the the, the intention uh, would would mm, would would, would yes, be different. Time to reflect, and the artistry, the writing. It comes down to the writing too. That somebody has thought this through. Yeah, yeah. And to what extent is and to what extent is someone the subject or or the or or, or the object of something? So with this 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 podcast the reason why i don't think it's exploitative is because it's looking back at that show and kind of contextualizing it and speaking to the people who were there but i think the show in itself now could be deemed exploitative because it didn't have that wider context it thought it had that wider context at the time but then it kind of didn't so i think it's yeah writing context intention mm, mm, that's a good point now um speaking of television full of great writing and intention can we do a really quick, quick fire round here? Because I must know, Hannah, uh, Bridgerton, cheap thrills or genius romp? Bridgerton. I just got an email earlier saying it's the, the most talked about Netflix show of the past two years. And I was like, really? But but yeah, it, it, it was, I'm not surprised. It, it, it was it was major, wasn't it? I mean, I I thought it was great fun. Yeah. Uh, and I can see why it, it had that kind of appeal. I think for maybe the slightly, not to generalise, maybe the slightly, slightly, slightly older viewers who uh, are used to period dramas, it was maybe a more pulpy version of that, right? And then for younger people, it's like, it's got reggae on page in it, you know? So it kind of had, it had something for everyone really, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's just uh, now that he's not in it, how it's going to kind of continue. I do worry about that. I do feel like he was slightly holding the whole thing. Other... Then of course Julie Andrews' voice, which I'm obsessed with. Yeah, yeah, and and, the, and you know the rest of the cast were brilliant. And Phoebe Dinnerville, fantastic. Nicola Coughlin, yeah. really great. But I do think, and I'm I am a bit of a reggae truther as well. Like I do still secretly think that he's James Bond because why do you fall out with well not fall out with, why do you kind of fall out with Shonda Rhimes and Netflix? You leave the show, it's a huge hit, and then you're. You're, yeah. you've got other plans it's I don't weird. know it's, I think it's weird there must have been something going on no he must have another plan okay to continue our fire round The Crown farcical history or glorious ascension the crown i have to admit i've never really been a big crown fan and now i'm probably <laughs> i'm probably just going to get into it for the diana stuff to be honest because that's the juicy stuff isn't it and um if they are going to stop before the harry and Meghan era then then this will probably be the juiciest that it gets i suppose but i think yeah they've actually had a bit of a, a controversy lately i don't know whether whether you guys have had but um Netflix was um, had some some Maristos kind of consulting for them, and they had uh, Jemima Khan, Jemima Goldsmith, who's friends with uh, Princess Diana, who's basically now distanced herself from it and being like, 
you're yeah she's distanced herself from it now sort of saying that they're making it too sensationalized and they were they were like well you were never actually an official writer you were just like a script consultant so bye but it does make you think if even those people who were kind of in the inner circle are saying hey you know you're maybe taking this a bit far then uh yeah at, 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 at what point does it maybe become a bit a bit um too far from the truth but I mean, people, yeah, people love it. And I suppose people are going into it knowing that it's not the truth. People know actually that the royal family are probably, uh, bar the recent sort of Harry and Meghan stuff, generally quite boring. Uh, and, and, you know, I mean, I mean, honestly, I think until these past few years, especially in the UK, uh, it, it was just kind of a thing seen as like, seen as a thing for like the overseas market, royal family. I don't really think we were that invested so I think it's interesting now that the crown has become such a big thing that we do have films like Spencer, that there is a sort of renewed interest in Diana. Um, so, yeah, I mean, farcical. Yeah, probably. But people love it. Just on the fashion side, just to speak to that renewed interest in Diana, it is out of control. I mean, the, the Instagram accounts being created in tribute to Diana alone are just have just multiplied in the past two years. So there's definitely a renewed interest. And that goes back to, you know, an earlier discussion about going back to things. Anyway, let's move on because we don't want to take up too much of your time. We have to ask you one more question. We cannot resist. What were your, let's say, three favorite series this year? Wow. Um, I know that we're putting you on the spot. You can take your time while you think about it. We'll, and it can be the we'll past edit. few years. Like it, you don't, it, it can be the past few years. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't have to be. I'm, I'm just trying to remember what my actual three were that I did put, that I put down because I did, I did make a list. Um, oh, Christ. I know what number one was, definitely. Um, okay, let's hear that. Uh, no, okay, number one was definitely It's a Sin. Russell T. Davis drama about the 80s AIDS crisis, uh, five part, I think it was a HBO Channel 4 uh, co-production. I thought that was absolutely fantastic. Went into it not really knowing what to expect, just knowing it's Russell T. Davis. He's obviously a really big name in British television. He used to be the showrunner on Doctor Who, has done a lot of um, LGBT uh, themed series following Queer as Folk, which was his kind of biggest hit in that area. So knowing he's just, a, he's a big name and he's making this series about what was obviously a very traumatic period of history but could not have really prepared for just how um evocative it is just how tragic it is he really creates this picture of these friends and you, you get to know them as a friendship group you get to fall in love with them as a friendship group and then you get to see unfortunately how um things turn really dark for them really quickly and you get to see the the, the wider historical context in both uh the us and the uk at that time it was absolutely fantastic it was originally going to be released week by week and then they decided to release it all in one go, but still do the linear broadcast week by week. And I think I, I thought at the time, oh, maybe this isn't the best idea because it really was so, so brilliant and so gripping that letting people watch it week by week, you know, that would have been my preferred way to have released that show personally. But they did they did drop in. It was really interesting to see how some people did binge it all in one go and other people did watch it week by week. There was kind of a bit of a split in the audience. Now, can I just quickly cut in and just ask why you would have preferred it to be watched week um, to come out week by week? I mean, this is purely if I was like the head of Channel Four or something, or if I was if I was yes. if I was Russell T Davis, just because I I watched it all in advance and I thought bloody hell, like this is so heavy, this is absolutely brilliant, but it's heavy and it's gripping and it's not a show to binge. 
And I did watch all of it in one go on one night and I was just an absolute husk after. I just thought it, it was almost too heavy to be, to be watched all in one go. And just that it was brilliant and it would be a shame for anybody to binge it and maybe feel overloaded. But some people did and that's fine. And I did and I still think it was fantastic. And other people did just watch it week by week. Um, so yeah, it's kind of personal decision. And it, and it definitely didn't have any bearing on how it was received. It still trended a lot on Twitter when it was on week by week. So I don't think there was anything. I think it was just more from a, if I was the broadcaster perspective, I might have wanted to just drag it out more. You know, we were in lockdown at that point. It came out in January. There wasn't a lot else going on. So that's nearly a year ago now. There wasn't a lot else going on at that time. So having that weekly um, drop wouldn't have been a bad thing, maybe. But anyway, it's kind of by the by, because I don't think that affected how it was received. It certainly didn't affect the quality of the programme. I thought it was absolutely stunning. I'm really looking forward to watching it. Thank you Me for this too. great yes, honestly, No, no worries. So I think it's really brilliant. And um, Ollie Alexander, who's the lead, he's he's best known as being the singer in the band Years and Years. So it's also really interesting to see him, someone who's better known, yeah, as, as a singer. But it also is absolutely fantastic actor. Cool. So that's number one. Okay, good. Is there a number two? <laughs> I would say, I mean, we've already... I love that. And we've already spoken about it, but I would say White Lotus, just because it was so well-written, um obviously incredibly funny darkly funny um but also had this um yeah real kind of message to it i i, I wasn't ma massively familiar with with mike white's output other than being like he um he, he did he did school of rock and he he was just a person who seems to have done a lot of things i know that he's kind of a professional reality tv show contestant as well and has been on things like survivor so i guess he maybe that's his that's kind of his his side hustle no way yeah that's his side hustle. i did not know that so that's awesome. he just seemed like an eclectic what? character but i didn't know what to expect from this you know doing your own hbo drama i knew that he'd done a series about a decade ago that had been cancelled um i just can't remember the name of it now but he, he he'd done he'd done a series about about 10 years ago that had been cancelled on hbo and not done another series since then so i think um, it was very much not, not not to be rude to him because he says he says as much in the uh, Vulture profile that he did, but it was pretty much HBO being like, oh Christ, we haven't got any TV for the next year. Has anyone got a script? Oh, we know you. You did a show for us that we cancelled after one season. Would you like to have You're a go? Kidding. So they so they went to him and he had the White Lotus kind of ready to go. I think so. That's that's, that's how that came about. Wow. Um, and yeah, it was obviously brilliant. I I, I think. I, I just hope that again, like we were saying before, with with with, with reboots, that they do know when to kind of call time on it. Because I'm excited to hear that they're doing a second season. But I just, um, yeah, you kind of you kind of start thinking, don't you? And a second one, and a third one. <laughs> well, that's just it, and it's so nice to hear them going out and saying who has a script. Like that seems so much more. Okay, he was a known quantity. He had worked in television, but you know, I, the idea of these fantastic scripts that people have written on spec, kind of rising and being given their time, is so heartening. Definitely, mm, definitely, is. yeah. But yeah, let's see about about season two. Hopefully, they'll they'll keep the quality up. I think the idea is that it's going to be in a different White Lotus resort, so it will be kind of an interlinked story, but not in uh, not in Hawaii. I think there might be. I think Jennifer Coolidge said it again, but I think the rest of the cast will be. Yes, I've read she is. Will be new. So, but we will. There is like I don't want to spoil it, but there is one character who will be missing a great deal, and I'm not entirely sure how it can, how it can go on without him. Anyway, hmm. <laughs> do you have a number three, Hannah? Number three. Um, I I would say probably Succession as well, which again, we're already spoken about how brilliant that was. I think the finale, um, the bar was high. I was kind of sad to see that a certain character was still alive. Um, I guess by the time this comes out, I can I can, I can say the name, can't I? 
no, 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 you're mad. <laughs> okay, okay. I can say <laughs> a certain a certain person who I just maybe thought they might shake things up a bit with them, but the, you know that that's still that's still kind of no bearing on the fact that it was a it was a brilliant finale. I think it's just incredibly well written. Uh, as I said before, with the piece I wrote, I had the pleasure of speaking to the writers and just hearing about their processes and all the kind of hoops they jumped through during COVID to make it happen was really impressive. And it is um, obviously just, it's just grown and grown and grown. I feel like we kind of went into the pandemic and it was a fairly cultish concern. And then now it's just, yeah, absolutely. It seems to be everywhere. Everywhere you look, succession chat. But I, I yeah, I feel it's merited too. Thank you so much. No worries. Thank (laughs) Thank you you for joining us. No, thank you so much for having me. Great to speak with you. So, Mon, it's Friday night. Baby, what are you going to watch? Successive episodes of Succession. You? Billions of billions. Please email us at fanfarefanmail at gmail.com. We absolutely love to hear from you. And please rate and review on iTunes. And thank you so much to our producers, Matt Bentley-Viney and Joel Grove. Bye. Bye. (laughs) 